Hey, it's Carmen Apice, and you're listening to the Rock Solid Podcast. to be this is small town music this is big town music he's ahead of his time you know but he can't use it if only he could prove it well tomorrow's just a song away a song away a song away hey everybody welcome to rock solid the comedy podcast for all things music both new and classic i'm pat francis and joining me today in the zoom room to promote his new album energy overload is a man who has played drums for just about everybody, including Rod Stewart, Jeff Beck, Paul Stanley, Michael Shanker, and many, many more. Please welcome legendary drummer Carmine Apice. Good morning, Carmine. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. Carmine, where are you this morning? I'm in sunny Florida. Sunny Florida. Now, do you, do you have a home there? Do you live yeah, there? I, just, I moved there. All right. We we moved here uh, a year ago, June, right in the middle of the pandemic, and uh, we got an amazing house here with uh, two acres of land and uh, a canal and a lake and golf course across the canal. And it's just a great place to live. And I have a studio in the garage which I recorded my drums for Energy Overload and uh, you know background vocals and percussion and all that stuff. The whole so, deal. Uh, yeah, I love it. You know, it's great. And uh, Carmine, do you golf? I don't golf. No. All right. I was wondering because you mentioned golf course, and I was going to ask you what's the deal with rock stars and golfing. I don't know what it is, but my good friend Nico McBrain lives down there, and he's a golfing fool. You know, uh, we go to shows together. We're supposed to go see Joe Bonamassa uh, with our wives on Sunday. So, uh, you know, he, he after you open up the trunk of his car, and there's the golf the, the golf bag. You know. That's that's funny. That's the thing about drummers is you guys really can't jam on stage. Like guitarists can hop up with their guitar and they can play with each other. Drummers just can't hop up there with their drum kits and uh, and play. <laughs> well, we can. Well, I, I do that with my brother when we do our show, the Peace Brothers show. We have two drum sets and we, you know, we jam together. And your brother is, of course, Vinny Apice. Apice, yep. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you've talked about this many, many times. What's with the pronunciation of the it's family just, last it's name? Just, it's just a thing that happened. Uh, you know, back in the old days when it was Beck Bogart and Apice, and I was Apice with Cactus, Apice with Vanilla Fudge. Mm-hmm. But when I joined Rod Stewart, he said to me, look, there's so many different ways to say your name because, I, you know, I would go on the road and people would call me a piece, a peachy, a pice, all this crazy stuff. So... I said, what, he said to me, what's the most used pronunciation? I said, most people call me a piece, and I correct him. So he won't, said, why don't we go with that? Because we're going to be playing in front of, you know, this was his band when he started. <clears throat> he said, we're going to play in front of 20,000 people a night, and you're going to do a solo. And I want to see, you know, I want to say this thing, the proper name. So if we go with a piece, then we could just do that every night. And then. I agreed to that. And then Ludwig did an ad that went in every rock magazine in the world and said, everyone wants a piece of a piece. Oh, nice. You know, and it made sense. And that ad became very famous. And then 
I was at 76 to 1980, which was good. And then Vinny came out with Sabbath and started getting some press. And <laughs> from him getting press, it was Vinny Appice. started confusing everybody. <laughs> and they've been confused ever since. It's so it's Vinny. So we'll blame Vinny. It's Vinny's fault. Blame Vinny. Okay. Uh, since you brought up Rod Stewart, were those the biggest crowds that you had played in front of in, up until oh, that point in your career? Totally. And up until, and, you know, I haven't played with crowds that big ever. Neither is he, actually. <laughs> you know, we did like six nights at the, the LA Forum, five nights at the Garden. You know, at- I mean, the ticket prices were a lot cheaper then. You know, they were like 40, 50 bucks. So basically, Rod Stewart years were 77 to 1981. 76, actually. 76. When I look back on that time, were those five years of uh, debauchery? It seems like there was just craziness going on in the Rod Stewart camp. It seemed like always uh, always partying, always uh, drinking and girls and all that stuff during that time period. Am I right? That's right. I mean, do, do, if you look out in the audience at one of our shows, probably 90% women, you know, and they're taking their boobs out and they're, you know, they're just going bananas. I mean, at that time, Rod was the best, the probably the best rock singer, the greatest front man that, that was around. Yeah. He was a good looking guy, you know, and uh, it was amazing. And yet, you know, we had number one records. We sold millions and millions of albums at a time. And it was just an amazing time for rock and roll, you know. And that band always seemed uh, tight. You guys seemed like just a band of brothers. Well, we, we it was. It was the Rod Stewart group. And Rod, Rod, you know, we the band went with Rod. You know, we had our own plane. And then uh, if we play like Denver and Rod. So I'm going to rent a Learjet to go back. L.A., anybody want to come? So whoever went, lived in L.A., we'd go on the Learjet, go back and come back after the day off to wherever the gig was. And then, you know, otherwise the rest of the band would be in a plane. You know, I never saw a, a tour bus until Ozzy, 1983. <laughs> wow. You know, it was always jets and planes and regular planes, first class and all that baloney, you know. And when you're flying like that in style, uh, you know, and touring with Rod Stewart, and it's just the whole production's so big, are you able to like step back for a second and pinch yourself and say, I, I can't believe this is happening or are you oh, just yeah. like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, come on. When, when I co-wrote the evening I'm sex and you went to number one, I said, I can't believe this. I got a number one record. You got to pinch yourself backwards. I mean, like when Vanilla Fudge was going on the Ed Sullivan show, you know, 50 million people watching you, you know, you, you pinch yourself and say, is this really happening? And then we did it again. We went on there twice. 
been a, a, an amazing life I've had. Yeah, I'm blessed. I know I've been blessed. And, uh, you know, I've become this, this character, you know, that started certain things in the drum world. But I didn't sit down and go, I'm going to start this. You know, it just right. did stuff out of necessity that ended up being something that everybody else needed. <laughs> you know, power drumming, you know, powerful drumming, you know, because there were no amplifier. I mean, there was no PA systems in those days. You know, they start playing drums loud because the amplifiers were getting bigger and you couldn't hear the drums. So you start hearing them harder. And then you get bigger drums for a bigger sound, you know. So you were just doing what you what what you would normally do, but you were uh, talented enough and lucky enough to succeed. How much how much luck is involved in making it as a rock and roll drummer at the level that you? <laughs> timing, timing. I mean, you know, I was playing in a band in New Jersey when Mark Stein and Tim Bogart came in and asked me to join their band called The Pigeons. You know, there was no guarantee that they were going to be anything other than they had a manager that was going to give them a salary and 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 the manager that wanted to get record deals and have the band be successful you know yeah so i could have said no you know if i would have said no my, my whole life would have changed you know but i made a decision to go check them out when i did you know it goes to show you you know you make one decision in your life that can change your life. You know, if you make the right decision, but you don't know it's right at the time, you're taking a chance. So I took a chance when I went. I, I went and played with them, and I never played with a bass player before. I always had a keyboard guy in B3 playing B3 bass, or at the time of Farfisa, I had a left-hand bass. When I played with Tim Bogart, I said, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. And Mark Stein's voice was unbelievable, and his, Organ playing was amazing. And Vinny was a great voice and, and a, a really great, one of the best rhythm guitar players I ever worked with, you know. And played decently, but all together as a band, they were awesome. I met the manager who was an Italian guy from Long Island owned a big club that everybody used to play at. And I mean, Billy Joel played there with the Hassles. Mm -hmm. Leslie West was in the Vagrants. You know, that, that was the whole scene back then. The Rascals played there. You know, so I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. Nine months later, we're on the charts. Crazy. You know? And then when you look when you look back on those early days with you know playing in these clubs with Billy Joel and Leslie West, you guys have no idea what's going to happen to you. No, you, know, you you're just you're just you're just hanging out and we all and, looked up and, to the Rascals. The yeah. Rascals were like the cool hip band from New York at the time. 
And it was Long Island, New York, New Jersey, all that area. And everybody was was wanting to be like the Rascals. Like when I started playing and seeing Dino Odinelli, I just started playing like him. Yeah. Twirling the sticks and stuff. But then I took it to another level, you know. And when I started adding that power, which was all body into the drums, digging into the drums, it started changing my style. You know, and then I got the big 26 bass drum for volume. And that when I realized I got that, I said, whoa. And then the fudge made it. I said, well, the bass drum's louder. I'm going to get a whole drum kit bigger. So I ordered this big, giant drum kit. <laughs> it was the very first maple finish, maple drum kit that Ludwig Drum Company made. And then in turn, I had that from June 68. And I had a gong, I had all the chimes, I had all these yeah. percussion things because we were always considered a, a, you know, like Mark Stein doing orchestral stuff. And and then like in 68, we took Zeppelin on the first tour and then John Bonham saw my drum set and he wanted the same kit. And I, I called up Ludwig and said, I think they're going to be big. You know, the understatement of what, five decades, <laughs> <clears throat> you know? And then... When we went out again with them in 69, he had a double bass drum kit, just like mine. And uh, eventually after that kit, Robert and Jimmy said, too busy with the two bass drums, get rid of one. She gets rid of one, and that becomes the Led Zeppelin drum set. Yeah. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Now, you're, talk, you're talking about all these uh, things you had in your kit with the chimes and the gongs. A lot of people have that for show, but you actually would use the stuff. Yeah, yeah. In in our album Renaissance, we had tuned uh, tubular bells kind of thing with tuning, mm-hmm. certain tuning that we used in certain songs like Paradise, you know. It was like, da 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 da, bang, you know, and that yeah. hit the chime. gong opened up different things and you know it was and then i ended up getting a huge gong in 1973 i got a big gong on a stand it was like 52 inch gong a stand that stood uh, six seven feet high i used to when i was with ted nugent i had took the gong off the stand until i was going to use it my solo and i used to swing onto the drum set you know when when we came on stage you know and and 
actually swing on it and then jump right into my drum stool. <laughs> the roadies must have hated your, your drum kit, Carmine. They must have hated moving that gong around. Well, they did. But uh, I had, you know, these calzone cases that had wheels on it. So you put it in the case and, and it just wheeled. Uh, but they hated, I had a big timpani as well. They, they hated that. And then the drum set itself was, when the Octoplus kit came out, that means it was uh, eight tom-toms and two bass drums. Wow. So they weren't crazy about that. I used that with Jeff Beck, you know, Beck over the piece. And then when I joined Rod, I took the Octoplus. Again, it's another innovation. I took the Octoplus kit and I wanted to put bottom heads on it because Octoplus had only singular heads. So it gets you a lot of attack, but not a lot of tone. It gives you some tone, but not a lot of tone. So yeah. I told Ludwig, I wanted another kit, a blonde kit, but put the bottom heads on it, on the Octoplus. So I had the first Octoplus kit with bottom heads, which expanded all these drum companies to start doing all these uh, extended toms with bottom heads. Because yeah. after Ludwig did, there was, Ludwig was the leader in those days, you know? And they came up with all the, all the stuff. And then, you know, I helped him. And there was one show we did with the Jesuit Tull Open Up, Led Zeppelin, and, and Vanilla Fudge headlining in Chicago. Unbelievable. And, and we, Ludwig came with a whole bunch of new stands and everything. It's new heavy-duty stuff. And they gave it to us. They were all Ludwig endorsers. And they gave it to us. And by the end of the night, we gave it back to them broken. <laughs> yeah. We were like the, the, the guinea pigs for these for these companies. Right. You know? Yeah, ground zero. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Rock Solid listeners, it's Pat Francis, and I'm here to tell you that we are stepping up our audio game with the new Shure MV7 podcast microphone. Now, look, if you want to get the best audio out of your Zoom interviews, and I know you do, then you need to buy the MV7. It's perfect for podcasting home recording, and gaming. It plugs right into the USB of your PC or your Mac, and it's ready to go. So take your sound to the next level with the Shure MV7 podcast microphone. You know what? I'm using it right now. Now back to the show. Let me talk about uh, 1986 when you were with Ted Nugent. The album is called Just Nugent. Derek St. Holmes. No, no, that was was 82. You're right, 82. I'm sorry, I have the yeah, date wrong. Yeah, uh, yeah. Look at you. You can still remember all this stuff. That's incredible. Yeah, I remember um, that. 1982, self-titled, just Nugent, Derek St. Holmes Returns. You're yeah. the drummer. And uh, I've always loved this album, and it kicks off perfectly and features some excellent drumming, the song No, No, No. Moonlight 
Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I like that song. Well, that, that, that happened when I was with Rod and I felt things were getting weird because there was a lot of drugs going on, a lot of cocaine and drinking. And, and did you partake in that kind of thing? No, not really. No. Okay. I, I never, I never enjoyed drinking, getting pissed drunk all the time. Or, yeah. I never did coke. I mean, I smoked pot in my day and vanilla fudge day. You know, we got spiked with acid at the Fillmore's and stuff like that, you know, different festivals. But it was never like a, an everyday get up and do coke. Okay. And the other guys in the band did, like in Cactus. Cactus was a coke band, you know, but I never really did it. All right. But, but a lot of stuff was going on, and I just felt it just was, was weird things were going on. So we did the American Music Awards at the beginning of 82, I think it was, or, or 81 or somewhere in there. And uh, Ted was on a show. And we were doing, I, th- I think we were doing Young Turks, you know, so, which I co-wrote, you know. But right, a, yeah, I, I was going to talk about it. It was a funky I mean, thing. It's so one of, uh, let's, yeah. let's not brush by, I know we're talking about this Nugent thing, but real quick, uh, I mean, Young Turks, is one of the most popular songs in Rod's catalog. People love that song, just yeah. love it. And you're a co-writer on that. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, we wrote the music, me and my buddy, Dwayne Hitchings, mm-hmm. at Dwayne's house. He had a little studio and he had uh, a new Oberheim drum machine. And Rod wanted like a new wave thing. So we said, well, what, let's use the drum machine. And I put hi-hats and cymbals on it, you know, and then we wrote the whole, all the track. And then the keyboard player, uh, Kevin Savagard, wrote that line. So because of that line, Rod gave him a share of the writing, which, you know, I, I, I admit he sh- should have got something, but not, you know, not, not 25%, a full credit. Yeah. Yeah. 25% of it, you know, because we did the whole, we wrote all the music, you know? Yeah. And, and we put the drums on, produced it. And we, we took what we did in Twain's studio and put it right on 24 track. So there was like not really much producing done by whoever produced it, which I was supposed to be a producer. And that was one of the, the things that I got screwed out of the production credit because of this drug thing I was talking about. Yeah. And Rod wrote the intro to my book. He said, I fired Carmine. F knows why. You know? <laughs> right. You know, I didn't want to curse on your show here. but That's okay. Uh, you can curse if you want to. Uh, well, he know. said, I fired Carmine. Fuck knows why. <laughs> you know? Uh, I mean, that, that made me feel good, you know? But, but anyway... Uh, so when we did that show with, with Ted, with, uh, the American Music Awards, Ted was on there and he said, hey, look, when you finish playing this wimpy rock and you want to play a man's rock, give me a call. So that when did. I left Rod's band at the end of 82, uh, 81, almost 82, 
I called Ted and he said, said that beautiful timing. I'm just about to start thinking about a new album. So why don't you come out to Michigan and let's, uh, let's play with the band. I got Derek back and let's put some songs together. So we did that. And then uh, we, we went into Pasha Studios uh, where Spencer Proffer was just getting his, his Pasha records going. Yeah. That's where they recorded Quiet Riot. So after I recorded the Newton album there, I didn't like the drum sound that much because I was used to working the Cherokee with Andy Johns with the rod, like hot legs, you know, big drum sound, yeah. and all these great big drum sounds. So I worked with the engineer over there, Dwayne Barron, to create that drum sound at Pasha. So we brought in wood, you know, put wood all around because they had rugs on the wall. It was just a dead studio. And, you know, to get that kind of drum sound, you need to have it live. So we brought plywood in, put it all around, put the drums in a certain position, used the miking techniques that Andy showed me. And then we created this new drum sound at Pasha. And I recorded my album with Rick Derringer there called DNA. But they also recorded that Quiet Riot album there right. with that drum sound, right? Yeah, Frankie I remember, telling, I remember telling Frankie, I said, you're the first one to use the, the new drum sound that me and Dwayne created here at Pasha. And that's when you know, they, they were doing it. And he said, yeah, great, man. Thank you so much. He was always a fan of mine. A nice guy, beautiful man. And then when it came out, it sold like 5 million, 10 million. I said, dude. <laughs> Unbelievable. You just sold 5 million records with my drum sound. <laughs> <laughs> and that album and has a big drum sound, man. It is amazing. Yeah. And he came over and gave me a big kiss on the cheek, you know, but we were friends and, you know, a lot of, I mean, look, this is, this is the way it went. This is truth. You know, a lot of times when I do these interviews, I tell these stories, these, these assholes, you know, in the comments, turn it around and you know, make me look like I'm an egomaniac or, you know, like, like, like I, uh, somebody had just said, oh, yeah, did you know Carmine Peace created the wheel? I said, Jesus, man, you know? Look, look if you, if you had a hand. Telling the truth here, you know? Yeah, if you had a hand in creating the sound, I mean, it's, you don't sound like you're bragging about it. You're just telling me how it is. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and you know, me and Frank, we were friends for all his life. You know, anytime I saw him, we, we would do. These uh, Bonzo Bash things, you know, which is, which was fun for me because, you know, Bonzo opened up for me in the very first gig when nobody knew him before yeah. the album was out. We were friends, you know. I just saw Jason Bonham. He said there's a, there's a, uh, a new Zeppelin documentary come out. And he said, and my father actually talks about 
how much influence you had on him. Wow, that's amazing. I said, wow, that's unbelievable because there's no 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 talk about it in the press other than a book called Thunder of Drums. Yeah. You know? And when I used to talk about John Bonham, like, you know, people would say, you know, like one idiot says in all these interviews I've been doing, Carmine can't do an interview without John Bonham talking about John Bonham, you know. Like he created John Bonham. Like, come on, idiots, you know? Yeah, I, I, I'm not down with that kind of stuff either. Oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, it it, it makes me not want to do these interviews, you know? Well, I'm, well, so- look, I'm glad you're here. And maybe, maybe with the words coming out of John Bonham's mouth, yeah, yeah people will finally uh, put that to rest. That's craziness. Now you've been uh, you've been doing this for. I don't know, over 50, over 50 years. Yeah. uh, Now, and you look great. How, how do you physically still play the drums, you know, with the veracity that you want to, or that you, you used to do in the younger days? How do you do it? I just do it. You don't think about it. You just sit down. Once you sit down, I just do it. I just went, did an event in uh, Tampa with uh, D drum. It was supposed to be like a clinic. They had like a little convention. Mm-hmm. But when I realized, I said, this ain't a clinic crowd. This is like a, everybody, guitars, salespeople, all this. So they had guitar players playing with tracks. So I asked one of the guitar players, who was like one of these heavy metal guys that has a band that goes, <laughs> you know, one of those bands. <laughs> yeah. I said, hey, you know any, any songs of mine? He goes, yeah, I know some King Cobra. Wow. I said, well, come up and play with me. You know, so we just went up and jammed. And you know, I was playing, and you know, and he was all excited about playing with me. It was fun. We had a great time. Then I did some Blue Murder grooves. He joined in, and then we did an Aussie song. That some guy came up and sang the song. It was, it was crazy. But when I got off the stage, you know, they gave me a a, a Carmine custom made snare drum with a with a plate that said Carmine's seventy fifth birthday. Wow! You know, and a beautiful drum, black with uh, brass hardware. And and then Earl asked me, "How do you play like that?" I said, "I've just been playing like that all my life. It's like riding a bike." I kind of feel like the drum kit might be like a time machine. Like you sit behind it, and you just see what you've always seen in front of you. That's a good way to put it. It just takes you back. Because like my keyboard player from Vanilla Fudge, he's got a bunch of different ailments, but amazing keyboard, amazing voice, and amazing drama when he sings. And you'd never know that he had anything going on. Yeah. When he gets behind that keyboard and that organ and forget about it, you know, yeah. you become somebody else. I guess that's the part thing you, you come, you get on the stage and you become something else. You become this entertainer. And, uh, you know, luckily, you know, I go every year, I get a physical, like I try and work out every few days and I have a studio here and I record in that I did the energy overload album. And I also have a treadmill in there and weights and, you know, and I try every other day or once every three days, you know, every every three days to be in the studio. Yeah. Uh, and on the treadmill, you know, and do that. Uh, but I am noticing it's, it's a little more work to get to the 15, 20 minute treadmill mark than it was 10 years ago. Sure. Sure. That's that happens with everyone. But, you know, you just got to. But, keep- you know, I went for that. What it was a, a stress, nuclear stress, te- a stress test. I don't know where they. Uh, I forgot what it was, but anyway, they put you on a treadmill. They get your heart rate up to something. Yeah. But for my age, they put my heart rate at 125, and I'm going, and <laughs> I'm, I'm saying, "So how are we doing?" She goes, "Well, 
we wanted to get you to 125. You're at 135. You want to stop now? I said, I don't care. You want me to keep going? I'll keep going. <laughs> and they said, wow. You know, and then I had a, a hard ultrasound. They said, your heart's really strong. So That's like, great. So it must be from playing drums and exercising. And sure. Trying to eat good. You know, I don't, you know, look, I have a sweet tooth, of course, like everybody, but, but you know, I try not to eat, you know, I don't eat burgers and French fries all the time. You know, I'm eating pretty good, you know, like mostly vegetarian stuff. Good. Yeah. I mean, that look, that's all you can do. You can just exercise and eat well and, and then it's in someone else's hands. Yeah, that's right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, let's talk about the uh, a piece Perdomo. Am I saying that right? Perdomo project. Perdomo. Now I don't well, know you this. You can shorten that to app. Yes, you can. App. <laughs> now, download the app. Download the app at iTunes. <laughs> now, sadly, I do not know who Fernando is. What can you tell me about this guy? Well, I didn't know who he was either. All right. So um, I moved here and I set up the studio. I had done a couple of things in the studio. Then I got a call from Tom Dowd, you know, who produced uh, Rod Stewart albums with me and uh, produced a lot of other great albums, a great producer. He passed away and his his wife and daughter called me last year, who I know. And they said, hey, look, there's a guy named Fernando Perdomo that Tom was going to work with. So he'd like you to play on some, some tracks for him. I thought, well, I don't usually play on unknown people's <laughs> albums, you know, just as right. a career thing. So, but I thought to myself, this might be a good way to learn how to operate the studio by working with somebody, you know? So, because, you know, it was still, um, the, the virus was still going on. COVID yeah. was still at its peak and there was no gigs and, you know, I, I, I was doing a Vanilla Foot Stop in the Name of Love song, you know, but I haven't, I didn't attempt anything at my studio yet. And I was just doing a couple of things for Cleopatra. But I said, well, have him call me. So he called me. He told me he plays drums, keyboard, guitar, you know, bass. I said, oh, really? He says, hey, I have my own studio. I produce. I'm in this movie, uh, uh, Echo of the Canyons on Netflix. He said, I played with Clapton on that record, and I played with this one. And I, I played with <coughs> all these people on, on the movie. I said, all right. So I looked at the movie and I, I saw him. I said, oh, pretty cool. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll send you something I wrote on my iPad on GarageBand. You send me back the stems. I said, I knew, I knew enough about recording to get the yeah. stems back and, and recording. So he sent him back to me. He redid it and sent it back, put the drums to it. And I said, wow, this came out fantastic. So I said, Let, let's try another one. So I sent him another one from my iPad. This thing called Funky Jackson. And he sent that back and it was badass. I said, man, this kid's really good. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> play bass, guitar, and keyboard. You know. So, so he just need all he needed was you. All he needed was me and my name <clears throat> to get it going. So long story short, we start sending things back and forth. He said one thing that it was like this thing called a little Havana. We call it. It was like a rock Latin thing because he's Cuban, you know. <clears throat> so at the end of it, I just sent him back a really fast double bass drum groove like I did in Parchment Farm, you know. And I said, see what you can do to this. So he put some guitars, bass, and keyboard to that, to the drum track, and it sounded killer. So now that's called Big Havana. It's one song, a little Havana, Big Havana. <laughs> And then we did a couple other tracks. I said, you know, I got a drum track here. Let me send you a drum track. See if you can do something with it. So I sent him this drum track, and that became the first video, Rocket to the Sun. He put this music to it. I said, I said, well, that's interesting. He goes, yeah, I love playing the drums because your drums are melodic and they, I, I can feel when it's going to the next part and this and that. So, so I said, well, I have some more drum tracks if you want to try that. So altogether, I sent him five drum tracks. And then another one was Flower Child. Another one was uh, the, the, the Broken Speaker Boogie. Yeah. You know, and all that. And before you know, we had 18 tracks now. Well, I wanted to uh, I wanted to specifically talk about Rocket to the Sun because your playing is magnificent on that. I love that track. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and you know, I don't know what that track was for. Yeah, you know, but what I did was I had tracks from albums I did years ago. You know, I had the stems for them. You know, and, and as an experiment, I gave it to him, but you'd never know it was the same song. Are you still amazed that after all this time, you start working with this guy you've never met before and you're excited about music again? Well, I'm always excited about music. Okay. That's, I mean, I look, I don't watch sports. I don't watch the, I used, my son got me into the Lakers for a while when I lived in LA, when I lived with my son and we went to games. My friend 
made the outfits and we got good seats and yeah. got him to be a ball boy for the Clippers, that kind of stuff. When I lived in LA, you know, he got me into that. But otherwise, I never watched football, baseball. I mean, I went to a baseball game with my son. After the sixth inning, he turned to me and said, Dad, this is boring. That's <laughs> a basketball. I said, yeah. He said, it's like watching grass grow. I said, it is like watching grass grow. Yeah. So we left. <clears throat> you know, but I was never into football, you know. So what I was into was music. Music. That's, so a, you, that's it. So that's you're it. always you're always excited about music. But uh, okay. I, I guess I was like, when you're working with a new guy, it's like you get that uh, – that yeah, you get a new fire in a different way. Fire, yeah. you know, like a spark. <clears throat> and I got the spark with him because we were creating some really cool stuff. And like when he did uh, one of the drum tracks I gave him was the one for uh, Pure Ecstasy. It was so funky, you know, when yeah. he when he wrote the track to when it, when he came in with the bass, the bass was so badass, funky. I said, "Wow!" I said, "This kid is unbelievable." He's a kid to me. He's 42 years old. Could be my son. <laughs> you know, he's a big gorilla looking guy. He's a monster looking guy, but unbelievably talented. And he produces a lot of people in LA. They're not big names. Like in, uh, on the, what was the song? Uh, Maybe I'm Amazed, the, the Paul McCartney song. Yeah. He had, he had the, the woman from that sings with Pink Floyd. He had her in the studio. And I said, why don't you get her to do some backgrounds, like gospel backgrounds? And he did, and it came out fantastic. And her yeah. name is, I don't know how to say her first name. Is it Durga McBroom? Durga. Yeah, Durga. Durga yeah. McBroom, yeah. Now, speaking of Pink Floyd, you brought this up. You play on Momentary Lapse of Reason. You contributed yes. drum tracks to Dogs of War. Yes. So how does that happen? And is Nick Mason on board with that? <laughs> Funny you should say that because it just happened from a, a, a voicemail that was left for me on, uh, on my, my, you know, the old time machines that you have, yeah, yeah, yeah. the little cassettes. <clears throat> and it was Bob Ezrin. He said, Parmine, I'd 
I'm producing a band. They're just screaming for Carmine drum fills. Give me a call. And he left his number. So I call he, him. Like, hey, Bob, wait, how you doing? Wait a minute. He doesn't tell you it's Pink Floyd. No. Okay. No. Just a band. He calls him a band. Uh, I'm producing a band. Okay. That that is screaming for Carmine drum fills. All right. He call me. So I call him. I go, hey, so so who's the band? He goes, Pink Floyd. I said, Pink Floyd. I said, where's Nick? Because, you know, we knew Pink Floyd from the days of 67. We used to tour England with them and stuff. Sure. He said, well, Nick was Nick is there, but he's, his calluses are soft. He's been racing his Ferraris, and and they want some new blood, and, you know, they want some, you know, in this song, they wanted a lot of cool drum fills. So I thought of you. So I said, whoa. I said, I'd love to do it. So I went down with my roadie, put my drums down there at the A&M Studios in the big room. They were all there. Nick was there, and Tony Levin was there, and and, and uh, everybody, the whole yeah. band, you know? And and Bob, so they had the they had the song on a four track, and then I filled up all these twenty four tracks, you know, thirty minutes a piece or fifteen minutes a piece, at a high rate, high speed. Yeah, I must I must have done six of them, maybe seven or eight, and we did it, and we were done. And then I said to Bob, I said, "So when can I hear something?" He goes, oh, "Call me in a couple of weeks." You know, so I said goodbye to everybody. And yeah, I call him a couple of weeks. I go, how's it going? What's it sound like? He goes, in a word, fantastic. I go, great. So when can I hear? He goes, I'm still working on it. Okay. Call me another week. Call me a week. So this went on for a few weeks. He'd always have another word for me. Fantastic. Amazing. You know, <laughs> it's ridiculous. You know, so finally I was up in Canada doing this movie called Black Roses, you know, that. They just had a reunion on the internet for this stupid horror movie. But uh, Vinnie Pastore, that was his first movie. Okay. Yeah, before the Sopranos and stuff. So I heard the Pink Floyd album just came out. So, you know, in those Canadian cities, they have these underground malls because it snows so much up there. Okay. So I went downstairs from the hotel. I went downstairs. I said, there's got to be a record shop down here. Sure, there was. I bought a cassette. I had a Walkman. I went up to the room and I listened to it and it blew me away. I said, wow, listen to me on yeah. the Pink Floyd record. And then I, I watched Pink Floyd on tour and they played that song with Nick, with Nick, you know, emulating my drum fills. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. He did okay, but it definitely <coughs> was not the same. You know. Let me ask you this. When you get called by Bob Ezrin to go play on a Pink Floyd album, I'm always confused about how you get paid. Like, 
are you it's doing a, a fa are you doing a favor? No, it's just a session fee. Just a session fee. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, the band Blue Murder. Everyone loves that first Blue Murder album uh, yep. produced by uh, Bob Rock. Bob Rock, yeah. And, Very um, first album he ever produced. What happened to Blue Murder? I feel like you guys should have had like six, seven, eight albums. Well, the first album was so good <clears throat> that everybody in the band and the record company and everybody thought that was going to be huge, you know? Yeah. And it wasn't huge for whatever reason. I think it's because of the lack of management, you know? Um, but when it wasn't huge, I mean, John Sykes put so much energy and time <clears throat> into doing it that he sort of went into a little bit of a depression kind of, not really depression, but, you know, I don't know what the word would be, but He's just he, like closed up, you know. Maybe, maybe a writer's block. Maybe he's no, uh, no. He just closed up because, okay. you know, it was we didn't get to <clears throat> that. That album should have been gold, platinum. Should have been. Yeah, it was like the next White Snake album after that twenty-seven million album <clears throat> record, and you know, and that's what he wanted for. He wanted to be big, yeah, and show Coverdale, you know. And when it didn't, he it sort of closed. He closed up. He got. Not, not really depressed, but you know, just I don't know. You know, he just maybe jaded <laughs> with the business. <laughs> yeah, jaded with the business, kind of. You know, and then it, nothing. We were doing nothing. We went to Japan. We did amazing business in Japan, and we did the, a tour here with Billy Squire. Billy Squire's album didn't do well, and the Blue Murder album didn't do that well. We started going from. Like arena, you know, six thousand arena sized places down to like Studio Fifty Four. Wow! You know, and you know, so by the end of the tour, that tour, that we were done. We never went to Europe, you know, and so then I started doing something with Vanilla Fudge because you know I wasn't on a salary or nothing. Yeah, I got paid to do the record, and that's it, you know. But it was an amazing record, and everybody wants to wants to see a reunion, but we, we can't seem to get John to do it. He came out, what was it, like last year, he was going to come out and do a tour. We, we played together a couple of years ago. Yeah. And we were going to try and come out, and then John said he wanted to do a history of John Sykes in there. We do Thin Lizzie, do uh, Tigers of Penzance, and over here nobody knows who that was, you know, and do some White Snake and there's some Blue Murder. And I said, and Tony said, but everybody wants to hear Blue Murder. You know, yeah. they've seen White Snake. They've seen Tim Lizzie. They want to see Blue Murder in America because we only did one little tour. We can do really well here. And at the time, we had some gigs booked in it. In, uh, he left in Lizzie in 2010, I think, to do Blue Murder. And then the manager who was managing in Lizzie was going to manage Blue Murder and and John had a falling out with him. So he canceled all the gigs he had, which he had big festivals and everything in Europe. And then after that, nothing happened, you know, yeah. nothing, nothing, nothing until this happened. So finally last year at the, at the heavy metal hall of fame um, awards, John was collecting an award for my buddy, Bob Daisley. You know, I said to him, so, so what are you going to do with this? Uh, Thing. I heard he was going out and doing this John Sykes tour. Yeah. 
<clears throat> he said, yeah, I have my young drummer he wants to meet you. And I said, yeah, I'll say hi to him, no problem. So he said, yeah, I'm going to do this. I said, so we get this off your, you know, out of your, out of your, your brain and do it, you know? And after that, maybe we could do some blue murder. He said, yeah, let's do that. So that's how we left. It. And then COVID hit. So he never went out and did anything. And that's where you, that's where we stand right now. <clears throat> and that's where we are now. Well, you share co-writing credit on the song blue murder. And that song showcases your talent right from the very start it's yeah. it's fantastic it is a great song and and i i did that i i wrote that groove because the actual groove just went like bomb 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 yeah bomb bomb you know and then cozy pal was on the original demo and he did a hi-hat thing chicka 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 and over them and i said well i want to do it both together okay and then I, I, and I always played that kind of groove, but I said, you know, I want to add the intensity at the very beginning. So when you add 16 notes with roughs at the beginning, it doesn't sound like you're going to go into that groove. It sounds like you're going to go into an up-tempo groove. So when you go, boom, boom, it creates this tension, you know? Yeah. And then you do that fill throughout, you know? It, it adds tension to the thing, you know? So that's why, you know, and Tony did, you know, played fantastic on it. So that's why we got writing credit on that. That one, and uh, I think we got writing credit on Billy as well. That's a, that's what's that's what's great about Carmine Peace drums. You're not just keeping the beat. You are adding so many layers and textures yeah. to these songs. And it, what well, that's, you what do, Fernando, that's what Fernando said about when I sent him the drum tracks. He said, "You play melodic drums. You don't just play time." He said, and yeah. I could feel from what you're playing. You know, this is one section, and then we go into another section, and then we go into another section. And then that repeats, and then we go into something else, which is like a bridge, which you change, you know, the feel and the groove. He says, so I'm just following you. Yeah. And when I'm writing these chords and stuff, you know, so. And for me, I hear different things all the time. I mean, it can be 20 years later, and I'll put on a record that you played on, and I'll be like, oh, I never heard this before. Um, you, you know I what always, I mean? There's I always try and upgrade, you know, on that Blue Murder first record. We recorded, I don't know, maybe eight of the 10 or 12 mm -hmm. songs we had on there. <clears throat> and Bob Rock came up and he said, you know, we're getting a much better drum sound now. You want to go back and recut what <laughs> we did? I said, sure. 
Wow. So we went back and we, we cut everything. But not only did we recut it, when I listened to a fill, if I know I did that fill somewhere else, I changed it. I did another fill. Right. So every every fill on that record is different. There's no fill that doubled another fill before it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like sometimes you get a rock drummer and and they're they're good, but you're creative. I think that's the word I use with your drumming. Well, you're you. a creative drummer. Thank you. I, I always try to be. Again, you got to keep it fresh for yourself. Yeah. You don't want to be. I think it came from Vanilla Fudge too, you know, because Vanilla Fudge, we never did anything like the record. We mm -hmm. changed everything, you know. And we we changed everything to to flow with the mood of the of the lyric, you know. Yeah. But one of the only tracks that we played straight time it was Shotgun. You know, but even in yeah. that one, you know, you, you listen to the way it starts and the grooves I'm playing and the different sections that go into like when we do green sleeves, I'm, I'm doing like this uh, marching band kind of thing. Yeah. You know, we're playing with the toms and everything. And it's sort of like uh, um, came out in January 69, you know, when uh, when I heard uh, one of the songs on Zeppelin, he did something like that as well. But. But his album was recorded in, in 68 and, and ours was recorded in, in the end of 68 into yeah. 69 and it came out. So our album was already recorded when I heard what he did and I, what I did was similar. You know, I said, wow, this is weird. And, you know, and that's a timing thing, you know, because right. their album didn't come out till January and our, our near the beginning album came out in January. So both albums had to be recorded, you know, like four or five months before exactly and i never heard him before you know before at that point i never heard him where he heard me but i never heard him yeah so when i did this thing in, in shotgun it went like boom boom you know with through the toms and the snare and yeah symbol crash and he did the same time and how many more times i think it was you know you know yeah it's it's a happy and, accident but it was yeah it was like when I heard that, I said, oh, my man, that sounds like what I did in Shotgun, you know? Let's talk about the Vanilla Fudge version of You Keep Me Hanging On. This is a song that just keeps on ticking. Did you know that Tarantino was going to use it in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood?
what we found out when he decided to use it, uh, we got, I got a call from the music director, uh, uh, the music director of the movie, because uh, You Keep Me Hanging On was a song that was published by, you know, Motown. Yeah. So they got the share of their song of the publishing. So they called me because they thought the song called Illusion of My Childhood, which was the little bit that goes in between all our songs. It was the, stri- the thread that went between all the songs on side one of our album. They thought Illusions of My Childhood was the intro. So they called me, knowing that you know I was the, the most famous guy in the band. So they got a hold of one of my managers and, uh, and said, we want to license that beginning of the song. And I said, well, that's really not the song. That's not it. But she said, well, we don't care. We'll, we'll pay you anyway. <laughs> so right. they paid us directly for the writing of that, of our intro, which, which I always said we should have been paid for because that was not really a song. Just like we just did Stop in the Name of Love. But we recorded the track first and called it Journey to the Center of Time. Uh, no, Journey, Journey and Time. And yeah. we, we registered that. And then we put Stop in the Name of Love on top of that. Right? So now if... If that ever gets in the movie, we're going to have to get paid as a writer, you know, smart. as well as Motown. That's smart. You know? Yeah. So, and I, I've been wanting to copyright all our intros and outros because, like, you keep me hanging on was also used in the finale of The Sopranos. It was used three times in that finale, and again, somebody was getting killed through it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the first one was at the beginning. When they use the intro, and all that stuff. And the second time was, you know, the 16 notes playing that stuff, which was our music. Yeah. And nothing to do with the song. <clears throat> so I said, had we copywritten that stuff, they would have had to pay us for publishing on that. So I was very, very happy to, to get paid from Quentin Tarantino. And he did his own, he did his own uh, edit. But when I saw the movie, I said, wow, what a showcase for us. Yeah. I mean, that, like, that, that must be a kick after all these years to sit there in a dark movie theater and have your music come pumping through the sound well, system. Well, unfortunately, we never got to see it in the movie theater ah. because, because of the COVID. Yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah, yeah but, uh, but but it was, it was great to see it on, you know, with sure. your earphones on and listen to it. But you know, it's uh, it, it was really amazing because it quadrupled our royalties for a year and a half. Unbelievable. You know, so I keep telling the manager, we should put on the, when we do gigs, put on this Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You yeah. Know? And he goes, well, that's not going to make a difference. I said, dude, it's quadrupled our royalties. That's to make a yeah, difference. It's going to do something. You know? um, and Vanilla Fudge, you guys just keep going. You just released a version of Zeppelin's Ramble On. Come to be gone 
Now that we did in 2005. I just right? got it. I just got a PR release about I it. I know. I know. We we sold. We did that album in 2005 with a, a European label that went out of business. Okay. And then we had no release on it. So the manager that was managing us now got us a deal with Golden Robot Records. We were going to do the Supreme song, uh, Stop in the Name of Love, was the first song that was going to be on an album called Supreme Fudge. Right? Okay. And they were going to do five of those, three other maybe R&B songs, and then two or three originals. But COVID killed that. So we, we just we had just a single gun and we had Tim on it. And I needed to fix the drums. I fixed the drums in my studio. I got my buddy Pat Regan to mix it. And then he, you know, he he uh they released it. But they then they also bought the rights to the Zeppelin album, which they've been releasing one single at a time, you know. Yeah. Like a year ago they released Immigrant Song. Then they released another one, Rock and Roll. Now they released Ramble On. All right. You know? That's uh, that, okay. Now I got the story straight. Yeah. So, so we we did we did that in 2005 analog. It was done analog, and you know we did what we usually do. You know, we take a song and change it. You know, that's that's what Vanilla Fudge does. Yeah. And uh, we like to think you make it better. Yeah, and. I mean, that version of Ramble On, I, I hadn't learned, heard it in a while. I listened to it the other day. And, you know, Mark Stein's voice is just unbelievable. He'll make anything sound great. Yeah. You know, and the playing, you know, Tim's playing, it was the original band, you know. And, you know, and now today, we are the only band from 1967 to release a brand new product with the original band. And That's incredible. Passed, and then Tim passed away. Yeah, that can never happen again, you know, and uh, it's just, you know, the band is just great. I mean, a great life. Bonamassa just jammed with us in New York, you know, and, you know, and we jammed Shotgun. The last band that jammed Shotgun with us, the last entity that jammed Shotgun with Vanilla Fudge was 1969 was Led Zeppelin. Wow. And so the mem you guys must be friends. I mean, it's not a, just a working relationship. You can't be together all this all this yeah, time without we're being friends. friends. We had lawsuits between us. We did all that. Now we got beyond that. Now we're friends. We got old together. Right. You know, we know each of everybody's quirks. You know. Yeah. And and you know we know what bothers this one, what bothers that one, and you know. We know each other 55 years. You, know? you walk in a room, everybody gives gives each other a hug. You're ready to jam. Yeah, exactly. And you all know. All right, Carmine. I wanna I wanna let people know that you're on Twitter at Carmine Apiece One. Yeah. Number one. Mm -hmm. Website is CarmineApiece.net. Or dot com. Or dot com. The new album is a piece Perdomo project. I'm gonna be giving five CD copies away. Uh, thank you, Purple Pyramid Records, for sending these along. And Carmine, here's this might be the toughest question the whole the whole interview. I do. Uh, I end the show with a playout song, so I want you to pick one song from your entire career that's <laughs> oh, going to end this episode. What do you wow. got for me? Dig deep. Let's do that Blue Murder song. The Blue Murder, the one called Blue Murder. Yeah. All right, let's do it. Uh, Carmine, so nice to see you. So nice to talk to you. Thank you for doing this so early in the morning. Yep, Continued no success with the new project. 
and with whatever comes from the hands and let, muscles let and say, mind of Carmine uh, Peace. December 17th, uh, Guitar Zeus box set comes out, 25 years of Guitar Zeus, 25th anniversary. And uh, I can get that on my website. All right. As well as these, uh, Peace Perdomo, the app, you know, and, uh, and I'm working on a new King Cobra record right now. Wow. Uh, 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 who's in the who's in King Cobra? Well, now it's Paul Shortino who's been singing on the last two albums and the okay. live album. Uh, Johnny Rod, the original bass player, me, and we've recruited Carlos Cavazzo from uh, Quiet Riot, and we got uh, Rowan Robinson from Dio. Well, I, well, I can't wait to hear it, and awesome. I I always look forward to anything you do, Carmine. So well, thank, thank you. you, and everyone, please enjoy the song Blue Murder. Take care, Carmine. Ciao. Bye-bye.
There's a hold on. The phone's going off. Sure. Damn spam calls, man. They're ridiculous, you know? Well, you, look, uh, Carmine, I'm going to suggest that maybe you uh, you update your uh, car insurance. I'm sure that's what they're calling about. 